And today I'd like to welcome Mark Lukianchuk, who's general manager of Oreo's Intelligent Commerce Solution Group. So to start, Mark, please uh, let us and our listeners uh, into your background a little bit and kind of where you come from and where you've been and how um, this fits into Intelligent Commerce at Aurea. Hey, thanks, Sagar. Great to be here. So where do I come from and how it fits? So in my career, you know, I think I've been able to traverse a few areas that I think will help Aurea and the Intelligent Commerce Solution Group. So first, I've got over 20 years experience with enterprise mission critical software, you know, the kind of stuff like developing commercial systems for retailers and wholesalers, things like inventory control, auditing, point of sale, and so on. And for those mission critical systems, you know, they're the kind of stuff that runs in the back end, like payment platforms, workload scheduling, enterprise management, that kind of stuff. And the saying goes that when these systems go down, bad things happen. So they're really, really important to businesses. I've also worked very closely with commercial teams in selling, marketing, supporting these solutions. So I have a pretty good sense of all the interactions between sales and marketing and post-sales, their goals, you know, how they operate. And I think the third thing is that um, personally, I've used and I've led teams who used CRM and other sales and marketing support systems, which are designed to help productivity. But sadly, in my experience, there's often a lot of money spent for very little return. Great. Uh, th th thanks for sharing your background. And so, so why do you think that is in your opinion? Why do you think that there's, um, you know, huge monetary uh, investment made and, and, and not enough kind of returns seen? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, looking at the size of the problem, even just in the U.S., right? Commerce is huge. I mean, for example, one in eight jobs in the U.S. is a full-time sales job of some sort. Now, obviously, many of these are in retail sales, but there are a lot of B2B salespeople out there, too. And I've seen numbers that show that over a trillion dollars is spent annually in the care and feeding of those salespeople. So it's really interesting to start with looking at how B2B commerce has evolved over time. And that kind of then leads to where we're talking about a lot of money spent for little return. So for a long time, commerce was fundamentally based upon relationships. You know, you placed orders with people that you knew and you liked and whom you trusted to provide you with what you ordered. So to give you an example in my career, um, I worked with a really, really super successful account director for years. He was one of the best relationship selling salespeople I know. He knew what steakhouse the procurement person liked best, what red wine the buyer drank, rode Harleys with the director of the department, played golf with the VP, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he consistently made his quota. And to be honest, it was fun tagging along in those meetings because I was always well fed. I uh, had a lot of fun with him. But you know what? Things have changed. You know, nowadays, it's more about customer insights and crafting winning propositions. How is the salesperson able to help them and drive the right business outcome? So the salesperson needs to actually provide some sort of tangible value as an information source and really to become more what's called a trusted advisor these days, even though I think that term has been overused a bit you know, these days. Um, also, it's expensive from a cost of sale perspective to hire all these field salespeople then arm them with huge expense accounts. So I remember back when cost of sale wasn't even an issue. So you could easily spend 10K and whining and dining to close a 100K opportunity. And that was considered the right thing to do. Now today, with the cost of acquiring a new customer, the cost of sale in general, all these things are managed really, really carefully. So if you spend 
$10,000 in whining and dining a prospect, perhaps that 10K could have been better spent in an event that would generate 200K of new business, or maybe making product improvements that would lead to 500K of new business. And then again, customers aren't really impressed by this anymore. You know, and that's even if their ethics and procurement policies even allow it. And quite honestly, most of them don't. Great. And I, and I like that. I like, I like when you touched on, um, you know, tangible value and trusted advisor. I, I think that really resonates at, at Aurea. So kind of peeling back a few layers of the onion, you know, why do you think the nature of commerce and selling has changed today? Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, I'll quote some metrics that I've come about, but really, you know, selling was and still is largely very intuition based. So when I think back to the start of my career, and I'd sit in these forecast meetings, and they'd be like, you know, what the salesperson thought when he or she felt that the customer was going to buy, who the potential competitors were based upon their, you know, imperfect knowledge of the situation. So I go into account review meetings where the narrative would kind of go like this. So when do you think the customer is going to close the deal? Well, I think it's going to be next quarter. And often it was left at that without even digging in further. Like, why next quarter? Are you sure? You know, what steps are there to closure? Now, at some point, we got into like sales methodologies. You know, you might be familiar with ones like Taz or Challenger, you know, those types of ones. And there'd be more probing. But at some point, it was still about the individual account executive's perspective and, you know, how they felt. So, you know, it was an example is a past company used to build dashboards in our CRM that would track deal backsliding, you know, after quarter end. So, for example, I knew uh, one salesperson who was notorious. She put her deals at 80% of the end of the quarter. And then after the end of the quarter into the next quarter, they'd slip back to 50%. Now, was the 80% too aggressive? Was the 50% too pessimistic? Was she just sandbagging? Did something happen with the customer? Did she inflate her opportunities at the end of the quarter to make her look better so she wouldn't get fired? You know, who knows? It took a lot of time and effort to try and figure this all out because you're trying to unravel this intuition-based selling kind of thing. And it wasn't until later where analytics came into play that you could do better forecasting and then start to augment that intuition with some science. And the same thing goes for which leads to focus on. If a person gets five leads, which ones are likely to going to produce the best results? And this is important, not just for the account executive and their time, but for all the people who are there supporting that person. You know, we don't have unlimited resources, so we need to choose our bets well. Even when you conduct your meetings over Zoom, you know, as many of us have done over the past year, you still need to schedule people's time, they need time to prepare, and nobody wants to work on opportunities that never have a chance to be won. You know, I had something, something on my team once that told me, you know, I knew that deal would never close. And, and I asked him, well, why didn't you tell me? You know, and partly that was due to the pecking order, the culture. You know, sales was at the top and everybody else was around to support sales. So if the salesperson believed in it, the general consensus was, well, we got to back that person, even if it didn't make sense. You know, so you can think, see the culture, how that plays into it too. So by starting to add in more intelligence, it makes things less personal and less emotional and more analytical. And this is really the trend towards data-driven selling. And Gartner has a really, really interesting prediction. By 2025, so you know, four or five years out, 60% of B2B sales organizations are, will be transitioning from experience and intuition-based selling to data-driven selling, merging their sales processes, applications, data and analytics, into a single operational practice. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if you're not part of the 60%, you're probably gonna fall behind 
and those who can't evolve won't even be able to compete. Got it. And so I'm wrapping my head around kind of analytics and, and intelligence and, um, you know, emotional versus being more analytical and data-driven selling uh, coming to life. So what about sales and sales cycles specifically? How, how do you think they've changed well, or have they? Sorry. Yeah, actually, no, no, they have. It's a good point. So, you know, in addition to selling through intuition, there was also, you know, kind of like a certain dance to the sales cycle. Uh, and due to everybody's lack of knowledge, a lot of time was spent educating the customer while also trying to get to know them. And there was a lot of in, what I would call unidirectional information flow that gave the seller the advantage. You know, kind of like, I'm not going to tell you the weak areas of our products and just show you the strengths, right? And of course, your strengths are then compared with the weaknesses of your competitors. So there's a lot of FUD, if you know the term, it means, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We're spreading landmines for our competitors. We're, we're doing all this kind of stuff. So, you know, good luck trying to figure all this stuff out, right? But nowadays, there's a greater social media presence. So you can find out a lot more about how B2B sellers are operating and engaging. There's also a lot more information available prior to the customer actually buying. So for example, review sites, you know, they help a globally connected world. And in years past, you were pretty much limited to word of mouth, which is why references were so important. You know, hey, I need a reference. I want to talk to another bank that's used your solution or bought your product. Well, nowadays, everybody could be a reference. And studies have shown that millennials in general don't even feel they need to interact a lot with salespeople or even meet with them personally at all. So the type of relationship in that sales cycle and how it's going to flow is going to be based more upon value provision, you know, than the kind of Cabernet Sauvignon that goes best with your porterhouse, right? You know, that old steak dinner thing out the window entirely. And I think also in addition to relationships, you know, selling was very much a lone wolf approach. So every salesperson managed their sales cycle and contact database very close to the chest. And, you know, at some point, if they left the company to go to another, all their contacts and knowledge went with them. So, I mean, do you think this was a key contributor to CRM gaining popularity, kind of the rise of CRM? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think in a couple different ways. So first, you know, it aggregates all information centrally, right? So your contacts, your opportunities, your pipeline, and, and so on. So it's no longer, it's no longer stuck on somebody's laptop anymore, you know, subject to loss or risk. Um, it also lets you share information across the organization. So if I'm a support person, I can put in notes that show the client's unhappy. Or if I'm in shipping, I can make a notation that the order went out the previous day along with tracking information. So everybody's working off of the same source, which is really good. Um, it also gets information out of email boxes where it's not really easily searchable. You know, email is such a critical part of our daily lives, but you know, good luck trying to find a customer comment from last year or some note that you might've sent yourself. So you know, notes can be put into the CRM and then they're easily found when you look up the customer record. And then I think lastly, you know, it provides a way for sales management to start to track and predict sales cycles. You know, again, it may not be perfect, but I think it's a good start. Great. So, and, and, you know, I'm asking your opinion here. What, what do you think is so great about CRM? What do you think makes um, it, it, it so valuable to, you know, leading organizations? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what's great about a CRM in my viewpoint is, you know, I think a well-maintained and hygienic CRM is the central part of any commercial organization. And I've used CRMs, various ones for over 15 years. So, you know, I think about it, for example, at Aurea, if I want to look at account plans or how a customer's doing, I do that through our CRM. 
And then all of our BI tools and analytics and all that kind of stuff that's driven off of that same CRM information. So I know that I can trust the information that comes out of it. It's all consistent, which is important. Fair enough. So I guess on the flip side of that, what do you think sales teams aren't so fond of when it comes to CRM? And there might be multiple answers, but I'd like to get you to <laughs> Well, I think the first thing is really nobody likes typing things into CRM, really, you know, um, and there's some really interesting metrics out there. Um, you know, one source I read, 91% of all company information is outdated, inaccurate, or missing in a CRM. Now, I don't know if that means 91% of companies have 100% of data wrong, or 100% of companies have 91% of their data wrong, or whatever, but in any case, it's pretty worrying. You know, I've seen varying numbers from different analysts, but they're all pretty high. The fact is sales spend something like one full day a week out of their work week, one full day, just entering and re-entering information into their CRM. So there's bound to be some inconsistency between what's in the database and what's real. And when you combine that with other things that they do, so like, you know, any time spent doing basic research, entering information, dealing with other activities that aren't really high value, um, you know, they take away time from prospecting and selling. And I think I saw it was on HubSpot, I believe, that something like 67% of a salesperson's time is spent doing activities like research, data entry, or emails. Wow. So you're saying two-thirds of a salesperson's week is spent on activities that are outside of kind of true selling. Jeez. Um, it doesn't seem like it leaves a lot of time for, you know, the, them doing the selling, right? Yeah, well, I mean, hey, I'm not saying that these aren't valuable activities, by the way. You know, research is very important. You need to learn about your customer's needs, but there needs to be better ways of getting information into your CRM than just using, you know, say Google and cutting and pasting. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how, um, you know, how I saw many cases where this wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot of value received out of sales tool investments. And part of the problem is that these tools require a lot of care and feeding, right? Two thirds of a salesperson's time, for example. You know, they don't share information and they really don't help improve the customer experience that's expected today. You know, and that's something that we're really concerned about at Aurea and we're examining closely as part of our strategy. Fair enough. And so, you know, you've touched on CRM, but as the GM of intelligent commerce, you know, that's more than CRM. What, what does that really include? Well, absolutely. I mean, CRM is at the core, but you need to look at the entire life cycle. So we've got products that are focused on identifying in-market buyers, doing email marketing, company research, you know, sales configuration, and, and more. And Aurea CRM is one piece of the puzzle. It's an important piece, of course. Okay. And so intelligent commerce, from what I gather, it takes into account, you know, not just sales intelligence, but also marketing and post-sales intelligence. Can you, you know, for our listeners, explain why this is so important? Yeah, absolutely. So at Aurea, we represent intelligent commerce almost like a wheel. So you think about it, it's got the customer and the CRM system in the middle, and then there are these various spokes leading outward that cover off a bunch of disciplines. And the reality is that everything's connected. And one metric that I've shown um, I've seen it shows that 70% of customers really expect a connected and personalized experience during the sales cycle. So you can imagine if these pieces aren't connected and they're disconnected, you know, most customers notice that and they, they pick it up. So here's an example where I, something I lived firsthand years ago that shows why this connected experience is critical. And I'll be honest, it was kind of uncomfortable at the time, so, but I'm comfortable recalling it now. So I was working with an account executive who was about to call into a CIO. 
existing customer, but we had this great idea for an upsell that was really going to help them. So 9am on Monday morning, we pick up the phone, the where I'm sitting with the account exec, the account exec dials, and surprisingly, the CIO picks up herself. That's usually not typical, usually the assistant picks up or whatever. So anyway, we're excited, we reach the CIO. So after introducing himself, the account exec is about to explain this awesome reason for the call, when the CIO interrupts and says, how can you have the gall to call in after she and her team were up all night dealing with a critical systems outage caused by our software? I was like, oops, well, that's a problem. So needless to say, it took a while to repair that situation. Uh, but here's the thing, it was totally avoidable. Had we had support information at our fingertips, embedded into the CRM screen somehow, you know, we would have known better than the call that morning. Or let's take it even a step better. Imagine if you did the dial itself via the CRM app, right, the, the interface, and it warned you. So even if you forgot, the system was smart enough to say, hey, Fred, don't call today or you'll regret it, right? And I've seen the same thing at a past company happening with, with marketing. They were sending information about how great a product is to a customer who was about to cancel our services because of product issues. So that's not only harmful, but it's kind of somewhat inflammatory. Now, I don't blame marketing at all, just like I didn't blame the account exec either, right? They're doing the best job they can with the limited information and insight available to them. But imagine if they knew about all these at-risk customers or unhappy customers and all this before sending out material or inviting people to a webinar. So you need to look at it as a complete virtuous cycle from targeting the market, developing the message, communicating it, building the deal, winning the deal, and supporting and growing the relationship. And if you do it right, your customers are going to be more receptive to your message and they'll buy more from you too. But customers aren't tolerant of mistakes like the ones I mentioned anymore, especially as they can just go elsewhere in most cases. And even when it doesn't directly involve customers, it's really frustrating. Um, a CMO that I know, she can't even do proper win-loss reports because her CRM and marketing automation tools don't talk together. So there's a lot of time and energy wasted. And all these examples these are things that, you know, some of today's problems that we help with, but Aurea is really focused on also getting customers ready for the future of commerce. I like that. And, and, and great job explaining what you call, quote unquote, that virtuous cycle. It, it makes complete sense to me. Um, so when we talk about the future of commerce, how, how do you think that's going to evolve? Well, I see there's, it's interesting, you know, there's so many things out there I and mean, you try and project the future. And I really see there's a, a couple of views out there. You know, I, I call it what I call like the three to five year view and a 10 plus year view. So over the next few years, it's really, I think it'll be about efficiency and effectiveness. Um, so, you know, I mentioned like customers expect you to know more about them. They want a connected experience. They want all that kind of stuff. And by the way, I'm not talking just about, you know, typical B2C, but also B2B. So I can think of a couple of relevant examples for you know typical B2B or B2C stuff that you could apply. So I don't know about you, I'm a Netflix subscriber, have been for years. They've got a great algorithm that learns your viewing habits and then recommends titles that thinks you might like. Now, I may not always agree with them, but they're pretty good. So you could imagine the same thing for B2B. You bought your office supplies from one vendor and now they're recommending office furniture that might fit your, fit your needs as well, right? So. Um, you know, they know based upon your supply purchase habits that you're, you know, pretty small company or mid-sized company, you're not a fortune 500, you like mid-range products. 
And so therefore the algorithm's not going to be, you know, recommending you buy those, you know, thousand dollar Aeron desk chairs, right? Because it knows that that's not your style. And I get this as well with Amazon today, where they'll say things like, you know, customers like you also bought. And there've been times where it's driven me to consider an additional purchase. And I see systems like this getting smarter and more on point as time goes by. Now, note this doesn't require a human salesperson to do this either. It's automated and it's great for upsell and cross-sell. And it's something actually we're looking to at Aurea. There's a lot we're gonna be doing with analytics and automation in this kind of sense. Um, it also probably means that you'll need fewer salespeople, but they'll need to be smarter, you know, more informed, more helpful. Um, also with the future of commerce, I think the second thing, um, to know more about a customer also means they don't want generic stuff thrown back at them. You know, there was a day not too long ago when a customer outreach or an inbound request usually was accompanied by a generic marketing one pager on your product or service that you're offering. You know, in fact, um, kind of another analogy, I think back to a, a, a number of years ago to a role I had at a large enterprise software company. And the role I had at the time, I was a strategic advisor helping uncover and develop large deals. I'd fly all around North America. So I flew into a city to help the local sales team on an opportunity that they were going to pitch to the customer the next day. So I took a look at the presentation and realized they were going to use a stock standard product pitch and just change the title slide and add the customer's logo. Now we were meeting with the CIO the next afternoon and I felt just felt, I'm sorry, you know, the standard deck wasn't going to cut it and not to be facetious, but it was kind of like, hi, you're X company where X is essentially fill in the blank. And now go take a look at the product features we think you need. Now that's kind of arrogant, right? I mean, how do we even know what they need? So the night before the meeting, we spent hours and hours doing meticulous research, finding out the real business drivers important to the customer, and then recrafted the whole deck to align to them. And I'll never forget the actual meeting with the CIO. So after the hellos, he goes, well, as a large vendor, you get an hour every six months, and here we are. And I got a hard stop in an hour, and I'm going to be watching the clock. Now, that doesn't sound too promising, does it? But instead of starting with the original plan, so you know, just preparing a stock deck, which would have gotten us that hour, and probably the CIO would have been starting to look at his watch after 45 minutes, uh, you know, we spent the first 10 minutes talking about him, his needs, and some of the problems that we felt needed to be solved. We didn't say anything about what we were positioning to solve them. So he then stopped, he said, hold, hold on, hold on for a second, Marco. I need to, need to stop you for a second. And he left, he had to step out for a minute. And then when he came back, he goes, this is so important that I canceled my next meeting. And, and the end result is we had two and a half hours with the CIO, we mapped out a customer journey with them that led to millions of dollars in new business over the course of the next couple of years. So you could say, all right, well, that's great. You know, by spending the time up front, learn about the customer, you're able to get a huge win. That sounds good, right? But there's a problem here. I was one person and I couldn't be everywhere. I wasn't scalable. So while I helped a number of teams like this, I couldn't help everybody. So what B2B sellers need to have is all of this insight at their fingertips and not need somebody like Mark to fly in to help. Now, Ori has a great product called First Rain. I suggest everybody should be using it. It allows information to be sent as daily briefs to the account team. So imagine all the Google searching that I would have been spared if it was already in place. But going forward, we're talking about the future of commerce, I see all this information and insight becoming embedded into your CRM, not just uh, as a supplementary information source, but as an advisory source. 
So for example, if a company has a bad quarter and you're trying to sell to them, what does that mean? In some cases, it means you're not going to close your deal. So as a salesperson, you know, you're going to need to backfill with another opportunity to make your quota. Or it might mean that you have an opportunity to accelerate your deal because your product or solution helps cut costs. That's going to be on point with them. You know, if it's a competitor to your customer that has a bad quarter, it might be something macroeconomic that's going to impact the whole industry. Or maybe it's good for your customer. You know, during the early days of the pandemic, for example, there were some industries in big trouble and others that were doing well of, or well, or I should say, or even in spite of, or because of, you know, consumer behavior trends, you know, paper goods manufacturing, you know, health products, those types of things, they couldn't be made and distributed fast enough. So what we're doing here is arming the salesperson with insights and intelligence. You know, the future is really about kind of giving them a superpower. The technology isn't quite there yet to predict all outcomes, of course, but we can help them get a lot smarter. And by the way, the metrics are out there supporting these kinds of insights being critical. You know, Forrester says that more than 80% of buyers say providers that are knowledgeable and who address their needs have the most positive impact on their buying needs. And another survey I read by 360 Connect showed that nearly three in four B2B buyers prefer suppliers who understand the ins and outs of their industry. Now, unless you're an industry expert, how are you going to get all this information? You want to have all these additional sources of insight and intelligence delivered to you. So with these kind of advisory sources, you know, they're going to be much more critical for every role that's involved with commerce in the future. Wow. Uh, real interesting story. Thanks for sharing that. And I really like how you touch on insights and intelligence that um, I think that that'll definitely resonate with our listeners. So what else? I mean, what else do you see transpiring or kind of happening over the next few years? Where, where's your mind at? Yeah. So I think in addition to, you know, this idea of commerce, I think the sales cycle itself is going to get more streamlined. So, you know, if I were to lay out the, you know, the kind of the traditional sales process, you'd get a user of the product, you know, works through a number of steps. So, uh, I've used software before. Let me use something a little different. So let's say there's a retailer that's buying commercial HVAC systems for their buildings, you know, air conditioners, heaters, all that kind of stuff. And the lead buyer, she's a facilities manager who works through her procurement person. So the procurement person then depends on a couple of different kinds of outreach. So either they're going to go through their preferred channels to see who could be a supplier, or perhaps you know, procurement or the user gets some inbound sales material. Hey, carriers trying to sell them something, trains trying to sell them a commercial unit, whatever. But again, it's usually pretty generic stuff. And this usually leads to a discussion of some sort where the end user talks about their requirements, you know, and the salesperson for the vendor then tries to interpret what that means. So they talk about specs and maintenance and reliability and so on. And sometimes the purchaser wants to actually see one in action, you know, get a demo, so to speak, right? Hey, I want to see how this works and if it's quiet, if it meets my needs. And after some time goes by, the salesperson then asks, hey, can I give you a quote? And then you get one, and then usually the quote's too high, and the company doesn't trust the user to negotiate, so procurement gets involved again with the proposal, and usually wants a couple of other quotes to compare with, and references, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a whole bunch of sessions to negotiate and prove that quote. Perhaps the contract's worth, say, a million dollars, you know, for a whole bunch of units. Well, who has purchase authority? Does that approver ask all the same questions again? You know, this can stretch on for weeks or months, and then finally you get a contract. And that's pretty convoluted, right? And that's just one product purchase. Multiply that by everything a business needs. 
So part of the streamlining is going to be about having less people involved and certainly less salespeople. So uh, McKinsey, the consulting firm, provided some interesting metrics about B2B decision makers. You know, I can't believe these numbers, but, you know, I believe them. You know, 70% now of, of B2B purchasers are comfortable making new fully self-serve or remote purchases in excess of 50K. 27% of those purchasers are comfortable at 500K and 15% at a million dollars or more. That's an incredible stat. So that means that one in eight B2B buyers today don't even need to meet with a salesperson person, you know, face-to-face -face for a million dollar new purchase. They're buying from a video, they're buying from a voice or from a website. And if one in eight buyers don't wanna meet with anybody in person, that means that your systems and your practices need to support them. And most don't in my experience, and that's a problem. Interesting. So different channels, different mediums, and people feeling more comfortable um, kind of in this virtual environment. Oh, that's real interesting. So yeah. yeah, I definitely agree that way. It's It's been a change that, you know, the fact that one in eight buyers will spend a million dollars without even needing to meet or see somebody is pretty much you know, a transformation for what it was like years ago. Definitely. Very, very, very interesting. So what, talk a little bit about kind of B2B marketplaces and where they're going and kind of how they're gaining momentum. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been seeing a trend towards B2B marketplaces as well. Um, one of the things I've been following, I've been looking into in how the global leaders in China are doing this with their various industry marketplaces. There's a ton of new startups that are acting as intermediaries in things like steel and textiles and you know agricultural products. So if you're a Chinese clothing manufacturer, and let's say you need a thousand bolts of cloth, you don't have to go to lunch with your salesperson just to start the discussion. You can eat your own lunch and order it online in minutes from the marketplace. Another analogy I like to use is with the stock market, because there's some, some close parallels. So I don't know, have you ever seen the movie Wall Street? You know, that one with Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas? You know, that one, you know, remember the process of a whole, you know, process of a customer wanting to buy or sell some shares. So let's say they want to buy 100 shares of IBM at $13 and one eighth, because everything was in decimal back then in 1987. So they would call their broker. The broker then calls the trading room floor. The trading room floor then writes it down, gives it to a runner. The runner then goes around to somebody else who then goes around the floor looking for somebody they want to sell IBM, maybe say at 13 and three eighths. And then some dickering goes on and eventually they settle at 13 and a quarter and the trade goes through. Now think about it today. Unless you're really, really super high net worth, you're going to go to your online trading account. You type in, I want to buy 100 shares of IBM. It'll tell you the price. You click OK and it just goes through. It's all automated through different exchanges. You don't even worry about how it all works. It just does. And B2B marketplaces are going to be a lot of the same. You know, need 10 tons of steel with so-and-so carbon content shipping next week and arriving within two weeks? A quick search and a click of the mouse, done, and at the best price. So this will also change the nature of purchasing. So traditionally, the procurement process was like super painful. In fact, it was so painful that both sides avoided it wherever possible. So let's sell you way more than what you need so you'll have enough and we don't need to meet up again for three years to do the next deal. You know, does that really help anyone other than the person making the sale? So through marketplaces, I see more transactions passing through 
but of smaller volume. You buy what you need now, and then you'll buy what you need next week, not three years of steel or three years worth of cloth, right? And the same thing, you know, that same kind of thing has already happened with automated equities trading. So, you know, but there's, there's some big challenges with marketplaces, right? I think the biggest challenge is still solve, just problem to solve is trust. Will it even get that steel? Okay, ordered, you know, 1,000 tons. You know, will it be what it's promised? You know, what's my recourse if things go bad? How do I pay? So initially, I see a lot of focus on sales, marketing, relationship management through these marketplaces, as well as the marketplace itself guaranteeing security and authenticity. And from the consumer perspective, I think, you know, Amazon's done a great job, and I see their B2B marketplace continuing this. But, but Amazon's not going to be the only player out there, of course. At Oreo, we're not picking a single marketplace. We're helping all of our customers get ready for them. And then lastly, I, I also see these marketplaces being more and more generalized over time. So instead of just buying steel or wool or grain, you know, I can get more complex items as well. So if you're selling via a marketplace, you need to be able to sell to this complexity. And I think this will take a while. Got it. Fair enough. And so, you know, how do you think COVID has impacted all of this? You know, what do you think it's, what do you think its effect has been on selling? Well, it's really interesting, right? It's clear that the global pandemic accelerated this shift. So, you know, look at B2C buying patterns, you know, because that's a great way of looking at it, right? When was the last time you went to the mall? And when was the last time you bought something online? I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I went over the last year, really, to a mall to buy anything. But on the other hand, I'm getting Amazon trucks coming up almost every day for very, very simple goods and whatnot, right? And business buyers have also been going online and buying for a while. But as I mentioned, it's generally been for less complex needs, although you can get fairly complex configurations, you know, say buying PCs online or something. So I'd say that COVID accelerated things a few years from what have otherwise happened. Um, another McKinsey stat that I saw was really interesting in one of their papers. It said that only 20% of B2B buyers say they hope to return to in-person sales, even in sectors where field sales models have traditionally dominated. So think about that, one in five. The other four say, I don't need to see anybody anymore. I don't want to return to that world. I don't need to have lunch and a steak dinner and play golf and whatever. My time's too valuable. So even if you're not in a marketplace today, it's likely going to become a channel that you're going to pursue you know, as cold calling customers and knocking on doors and having lunches. That's not going to work anymore. Without the marketplace, you're going to have to either lure them to your website or sell to customers via theirs. Yeah, I, I totally concur. You know, the research that I've done, you always see a lot of these business to consumer trends eventually uh, make their way to kind of B2B. So um, yeah, absolutely where you're coming from. And so what I mean, what do you think the 10 year view is here? Where, where are we going to be in a decade? What, what do you think it's going to look like? Well, it's interesting because, you know, that gets a little harder to predict, right? But looking at the trends around data-driven selling, uh, looking at these marketplaces, you know, I, I think the ultimate view in my point, from my perspective, is, is that nearly everything, not everything, but, you know, a lot of things, the majority will be sold via these universal B2B marketplaces. And we're not talking person-to-person -person selling. We're talking like through algorithms or bots or avatars that represent the buyers and the sellers. So, I mean, in theory, there could be no traditional salespeople left at all. But, you know, that's a bit aggressive. But practically, I think it'll be a gradual but irreversible shift. 
as sellers get more insight on buyers and buyers also on sellers, the strongest players are going to come out ahead. And those who aren't capable of automating and augmenting are not going to thrive and they, they might not even survive. Wow. Uh, that sounds pr pretty futuristic. Um, you know, wh what do you think the limitations are right now from get, getting us there today? I mean, well, software thing, a hardware thing or something well, different? Yeah, I think part of it is the market's not quite there yet, right? As I mentioned, there's a bunch of issues like trust and logistics that still need to be sorted out. But again, I think we're getting there, right? And and the, I guess the advantage for me of being in the industry for a while is you get to see how these cycles go and, and how they get solved. So for example, a um, number of years back, I gave a keynote presentation at a CIO summit and I was positioning about public cloud computing. And there was a lot of skepticism then. And I said, no, this is real. And things like security, availability, performance, they're gonna be sorted out. You know, and I'd love to say that I was prescient, but in reality, it was just sensible. The, the economics made sense. Uh, the same thing's gonna happen to B2B in some way, shape or form. Now, it might take 10 years, it might take 15 years, but the trend is irreversible. The economics also makes sense. And there's gonna be some role transformation that goes along with it. So you might not need dedicated field salespeople anymore, or if you do, maybe just a small number. But what you might need are more people who are helping sell through B2B marketplaces and focusing on communicating value and then following up to ensure things went well. But here's the rub. It's difficult to execute this with how things are put together today. You know, systems that support commerce, they're, they're not integrated. It's a mix of old on-premise stuff and new. There's a ton of new tools all the time that rely on data. You know, for example, I've been you know, following the sales and marketing tool space for a while. And you know, we went from something like 150 tools 10 years ago to over 8,000 today. There's tons of cool startups, tons of cool new ideas, but a 50-fold increase in a decade. How can all of this be possibly absorbed? And then I read a Forrester study that says that 75% of customer-focused employees waste time making a sense of data from all these disparate sources. So the idea of a customer data platform and aggregating all the stuff and integrating it and making sense of it all is really, really critical. So the native is we don't have a shortage of tools. There's like over 8,000 of them. The issue is that intelligence you know, relies on consistent access to the same underlying information. So that's why at Aurea we're looking towards the future with intelligent commerce, while we're also trying to help you solve problems from the past and present. So you should expect to see more on this shortly from us. Great, Mark. I, I, I really appreciate your time today. I think you, I think you did a great job of kind of sharing the here and now and, and, and what customers should you know be looking for today and then kind of you know the five and ten year vision for you know kind of intelligent commerce and then and the bridge to get there so i really appreciate your time and i hope we can do this sometime soon again absolutely thanks Sager. it was a real pleasure to speak with you really enjoyed this session and uh thanks for inviting me <laughs>